Well, I am delighted to see how many of you could make it out of your driveways, much less your neighborhoods this morning. Thank you uh, for being here. Uh, We are grateful. Hopefully you got a little bit more elbow room this morning too. Some of you could probably stretch out in a pew and take a nap, but please don't uh, this morning. But for those of you who are watching on live stream, uh, welcome. We're glad that you are watching, but don't get comfortable and get used to that. We need you here. We miss you. We want you to come back. So keep that in mind. Ordinarily on St of Life Sunday, uh, we would celebrate our child dedication service. Uh, The Lord must have known what he was doing this morning because we had already decided to postpone that until baby Clara Robertson could be able to join us. And so when Clara gets out of the hospital, she will be able to join us for our baby dedication as well. Uh, That was on part of our our fellow parents that we're going to dedicate it. So uh, we're looking forward to that happening. So let's go to the Father in prayer. Lord, we ask that you bless us through your word this morning. We ask that you speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We know that you are the God of life. We know, Lord, that you have spoken to us through your word. And we know, Lord, that your word is inerrant. And because of that, we can trust it. We can rely upon it. And so, Lord, we ask that you would speak through it to us today. And that, Lord, in the midst of it, we might give praise and honor to you through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this all in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Well, by my count, it has been six weeks since we were last in Genesis. That means we need to have a brief recap before we get started. And I promise I won't get into the details, but let me quickly remind you of where we are in the book and also where we are in the story. Now, if you remember, we began our study of Genesis. I told you that the structure is very clear. After the prologue of the book, we have 10 individual sections, which we will refer to as books, and each of those sections begins with the Hebrew word toledot, which means these are the generations of. So, for example, we've already had these are the generations of Adam, these are the generations of Noah, these are the generations of Abraham, and so on. And this morning, we are about to begin book eight. These are the generations of Isaac. And these last three books are the largest of Genesis. They contain mostly narrative, but Lord willing, we hope to be finished with them by the end of this year. That is where we are in the book. But allow me briefly to explain where we are in the story. And I'm going to go all the way back to creation. But again, I promise only to hit the highlights here. The Lord God created the earth and he also created mankind that he should be his regent. Both the man and the woman were given stewardship over the earth. They were to be God's representatives on the earth, ruling on his behalf and for his glory. But very quickly, rather than trusting the Lord who made them, the man and the woman chose their own way when they were tricked by the serpent. And from this event, all of mankind became sinful. There was some hope when the Lord promised in chapter 3 that the seed of the woman would come to destroy the serpent along with his work. However, sin entered the world, and between chapter 3 and 6, we see it had pervaded everything. It was so bad that God, in his righteous judgment, literally cleansed the earth with a worldwide flood. And from one consistently righteous man, Noah, he determined to start over again. Noah had three sons, and one of them, Shem, became the ancestor of Eber, from whom we get the designation Hebrew from. And Eber eventually had a descendant named Abraham, who was married to a barren woman named Sarah. 
and God chose this barren couple to be his new representatives upon the earth. It would be through their seed or their offspring that he would launch a new people to represent him in the world. And this offspring would bless all the nations on the earth. Now, throughout Abraham's life, we have seen that he made many mistakes. One might wonder why God would choose him. But each time Abraham erred, Yahweh was graciously teaching the man and increasing Abraham's faith. Yahweh's promise to Abraham came true when he was 100 years old. Sarah finally had a child 20 years after the promise. And Abraham's faith in God's promises had become so solid that he was even willing to sacrifice Isaac, the child of promise, believing that God could raise him from the dead if necessary in order to keep his word. But that did not happen as Yahweh provided a substitute for the sacrifice of Isaac. Now, I just told you in five minutes what it took all of 2023 to preach through. So if you want more details, you might want to go back and listen to those sermons online. But at this point in the story, Abraham has yet to die, even though that was recorded earlier in the chapter. And now in book eight, we are about to see the generations of his son, Isaac. It's noticeable that Isaac's story begins just like his dad's. He and Rebekah will struggle with infertility. We will see how they deal with that as they await God's blessing. Then we'll see God bless them, not just with one child, but with two. And those two children will be at odds with one another from the womb throughout their entire generations. And we'll see the birth of these two children and how they develop into adulthood. And that's going to form the basis of our outline this morning. Infertility, the blessing of children, two nations, birth and what transpires. You can see this on your worship guide. Ten verses may not seem like much, but they are foundational, and they're going to set up the rest of the book of Genesis. So let's look at how it begins. We're first reintroduced to the characters involved. After all, this is a new book in Genesis. Again, this is found on page 19 of your pew Bible, Genesis chapter 25, verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, uh, uh, Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Now, the text identifies Isaac as a descendant of Abraham. Unlike Ishmael and the additional sons that are mentioned back in verses 1 through 6, Isaac is the one whom the promise to be a blessing to the nations is giving because he is the child both of Abraham and Sarah who was barren for 90 years. Rebekah is the granddaughter of Abraham's brother Nahor. And she was sought after in Padan Aram by Abraham's servant because he did not want Isaac to marry a woman from Canaan. Isaac is 40 years old when he marries Rebekah. This happens 35 years before his father dies. And she is also the brother of Laban who is going to play a significant part of the story in the following chapters. But now we see that there is a problem here in verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Just like his mother... Rebecca was barren for a significant number of years. According to verse 26, 20 years to be exact. 
Now we read that within five verses here, but imagine 20 years of trying to have a child and not seeing any result. But we also see this as a faith-building moment. Isaac is an intercessor on behalf of his wife. He prays fervently for a child, and he knows it must happen because God promised it would happen. He does not give up. He perseveres. He is a better example than his father here. And suddenly, 20 years later, the problem becomes a blessing. Rebecca conceives, and look at the specific reason why. Yahweh, which is the proper name for the covenant-keeping God, whenever you see the word Lord in all capital letters in the Bible, it's in place of Yahweh's name. Yahweh granted Isaac's prayer. The Lord acknowledged Isaac's faithfulness in this. But as Rebecca feels the baby in her womb, what the people two centuries referred to as the quickening, the feeling of the children coming to life, she is about to find out she has not only been blessed with one child, but with two. And she senses something is unusual. Verse 22, the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? Now, we have to remember there are no fetal monitors or ultrasounds during this time. Sarah doesn't know that she has twins. The narrator informs us that she does with the plural word of children here. She's never been pregnant before, so all of this is a new experience for her. But something unusual is definitely going on inside of her that even some midwives would have found to be strange. The twins are already at odds with one another, and they are already fighting within her womb. Now, I know this is what brothers do. I had two terrorize me since my childhood. But wow, for the tension to begin in Rebecca's belly before birth, that must have been a pretty intense relationship. And she does something remarkable here. When she feels something is off, does she just say to herself, well, oh, that's just the way it should be. I guess I just need to settle into it. No, she went to inquire of the Lord. She prays. What a great example to us. Verse 23, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Amazingly, God answered her question. He explained what was going on. Now, we're not sure how, whether this was an audible voice or an angelic messenger like we had in chapter 18 or a prophet or something that happened within her own conscience. And I point this out because this is one of those occurrences where Scripture is descriptive rather than prescriptive. So we're not told to expect the voice of God in this way as a usual occurrence. I'm going to rely on the Bible to speak to me regularly. But God tells her a prophetic message. She doesn't have one child, but two. And the two shall be the originators of their own nations. One nation will be stronger than the other. And note this, the older will serve the younger. Now, towards the end of the message, I'm going to draw out the implications of this. But for now, we need to realize we have two boys in her wombs. Each will produce a nation. The older son nation will be subdued by the youngers. All of this would be mute if she doesn't have twins. But of course, the Lord knows all, and he never lies. Finally, the day of her birth arrives, and of course, she does have twins. Note how the text says, behold, it was a wonder 
First she is barren, then 20 years after her marriage, she gives birth to twin boys. Consider the animosity between Hagar and Sarah earlier when Ishmael was born, how Sarah felt she was excluded and belittled. And you can see how much a big deal this must have been to a woman who was once barren. We are told the first came out with hair all over his body, so he was named Esau, which literally means hairy, like as in furry, not as in herald. He will later receive the nickname Edom. But the fact that Esau is covered in hair will be significant later in the story. And he is the oldest. But clutching onto his heel, immediately afterwards comes Jacob, the younger. His name literally means to take by the heel. It also has the double meaning of he cheats or he deceives. That too will have a significant meaning later in the story. He will also have a name change in chapter 32 from Jacob to Israel. But from the womb, these boys experience tension with one another. And remember, the prophecy is that the older would serve the younger here. The last two verses highlight their differences. Esau loves to camp and hunt. We might think of him as a hunter, maybe even as a jock. Someone who loves to be outdoors and given to sleeping outside. And Jacob is described as a quiet man dwelling in tents. And that, don't take that to mean that Jacob was some kind of weakling here. Lord willing, we're going to see he was a man of strength later. The word translated as quiet also used to mean, uh, is used to mean civilized. Most likely, Esau was content to let Jacob stay at home and organize the livestock and the family business while he would take off on his hunting expeditions. So already, two men with two personalities. Esau will be impulsive, and Jacob will become calculating. But the differences are highlighted even more with the final verse. The parents are not unified over them. They have their favorites. Isaac loves Esau because he ate his game. That makes him sound like a glutton, but remember, Isaac is 60 years old at this point. Isaac probably liked to to hear Esau recount his exploits while hunting and, and bringing him these exotic foods. And Esau would have been a man's man. In my mind, I've always pictured him as kind of being like Gaston in Beauty and the Beast. I bet he was especially good at expectorating. And no doubt, the dutiful son that remains at home, assisting his mother with all the things that actually needed to be done within the encampment, becomes Rebecca's favorite. Two boys, two nations that become incredibly different from one another. What could go wrong? Well, we'll have to save that part of the story for next week. But already we have six applications that we can take away from this text. One of them concerns the occasion that we mark today. Today is the Sanctity of Life Sunday. It was always commemorated on the Sunday that is closest to the Roe versus Wade decision. And even though that decision has been overturned, we still need to keep a close eye on those that would destroy life in the womb. I need to preface what I say here very carefully because I hope to provide very better understanding here for my fellow brothers and sisters. There seems to be much confusion among those in the church concerning the issue of abortion. And our position should be very clear. It comes down to three simple truths here. Number one, we believe that there is a God who is the originator of all of life. 
Second, we believe that God has spoken to us through the Bible, which was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And third, we believe the Bible is without error. Now, I preface my point with those three statements because if you believe those three propositions, God is the originator of life, he speaks through his word, and the word contains no errors, then you must arrive at a pro-life position. The scripture is very clear. Life begins at conception. That is when humanity experiences life. Here we have Yahweh already telling us what the children in Rebecca's womb will accomplish. They have souls and purpose in life. We don't have to just rely upon this passage to teach us. We could look at the Spirit-inspired words of David in Psalm 139. Randy prayed through these earlier. There, David wrote in verse 13 of Psalm 139, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. David says God knew him before he was even formed, that God knitted him together in his mother's womb and already had planned out all of his days. This would mean he had his personhood even before conception as Yahweh had planned it out. But we don't have to just rest on these two passages alone. Turn to to Luke chapter 1 with me, if you will. This is found on page 855 of your pew Bible. And as you're turning there, allow me to, to set the scene here. Here we encounter another barren couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And like Isaac, Zechariah prays for his wife, and the Lord gives him this message. Luke chapter 1, verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. When will he be filled with the Spirit? From his mother's womb. He has a future purpose. He's not just tissue. He is a person. A little later in the chapter, we'll be told about Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his remarkable conception. And as proof that the prophecy is real, uh, Mary goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, and we read here of little unborn John in Elizabeth's womb, excitement at coming in contact with the unborn Messiah. Verse 41 here in Luke chapter 1, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. This baby had emotions. It was a person. I can cite further proof throughout the Bible. Human life begins at conception just as spiritual life begins at conversion. Christians are not permitted to believe contrary to this position. 
If one is not pro-life, then that person does not believe in either an inerrant Bible, that the God of the universe speaks to us through the Bible, nor do they believe in an authoritative creator God. They are left without any anchor other than their own personal opinions. Now, I point this out because I just got finished reading Marvin Alasky and Leah Savas's recent book, The Story of Abortion in America, a book I highly recommend. And they demonstrate convincingly that abortion will always be framed more about the inconvenience of human life than it will be about the health of the mother. And even with the recent overturning of Roe v. Wade, because in their sin, people do not believe in an all-authoritative God, nor do they believe in his all-authoritative word, nor do they believe that it is error-free, they will continue to see human life, whether in the womb or in the nursing home, as being inconvenient. And our text this morning is unequivocal. Life begins at conception because God has a purpose for that life. Listen to this. Even if that life is a miscarriage, there is a purpose for that lost child. Though the parents feel the loss and it hurts, there is a soul that is in heaven that is glad for the parents' faithfulness. That's why so many women who experience a miscarriage feel that deep sense of loss and hurt and pain. That's why they grieve, and it's understandable. But I promise you, you will see your child again. Now, as a caveat, I want to say, if you have experienced the pain of an abortion, and I know that many have because they were lied to or taken advantage of when when they were in a situation of a crisis pregnancy, there is forgiveness and there is new life for you in Christ Rather than continue to suffer from the loss, I beg you, please allow us to speak to you before you leave so that we may share with you how you may have healing from your pain. In fact, my dear friend Giselle Crooks is here. She works at the Huntsville Resource Pregnancy Center. She would love to talk to you. We all would love to to share about forgiveness in Christ. Our separate application is that life is at God's hands. Life is at God's hands. On one hand, God grants human life when it serves his purposes. And on the other, we know that all things work for the good of those that love him. Sarah waited 20 years for a child. Isaac and Rebecca had to wait 20 years for a child. And I know friends who desire but never got the blessing of a child of their own. And yet, I also have seen how God has used barren parents to love an unwanted child as their very own through adoption. In fact, you could tell no difference between the adopted child or a biological child in terms of the love of the parent. And when I see that, I see a remarkable picture of how we are all adopted into God's family by the finished work of Christ. I have prayed for many parents that have struggled with fertility. And medical science has come a long way, but God is still the author of all of life. Life is at his hands from beginning to the end. And I, for one, am glad, and I would rather trust him with that anyway. Third, never underestimate the power of praying according to a promise. Never underestimate the power of praying according to a promise. Isaac prayed fervently because he knew the promised child must come through Rebekah. 
And when Yahweh promises, he always keeps his word. When the Bible tells us that he can save to the uttermost, no matter what sins you have committed, Christ can save you. When you feel your love has grown cold for him, you can pray because he promised, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And when he sends you out to to church plant or to be a missionary, you can know that all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus and he has promised to be with you even to the very end of the age. Church, we will know whether or not we believe in the promises of God by our prayer lives. Do you believe his word? Do you? Then fervently pray and leave the timing up to him. He wants marriages to be restored. He wants communities to be restored. He wants people groups to be reached. He wants salvations and baptisms from people we never thought could be saved. Church, do you believe that? Then pray for it unceasingly. As Spurgeon has said, we don't just pray for the work. Prayer is the work. It's what we do. Fourth, Our creator loves diversity. I'm so thankful for this. God created Esau and Jacob to be different. Esau is hairy. Jacob is not. Esau likes the outdoors. Jacob likes the tent and a bed. And I'm with him there. Esau likes the wildlife of hunting. Jacob likes domestication. And where Isaac and Rebekah went wrong is that they could not appreciate the differences equally. God loves the diversity among his children. He created us to be many colors, whether it's the the color of our skin tone or our hair or our eyes. He has given us extraordinary gifts and talents. Some of us can play instruments like a Glenn Harper, work out problems like a Wade Patterson, preach like a Brandon Ash, organize like a Kelly Nichols. And some of us cannot. But the Lord works through all of us to accomplish his purposes. That is the beauty of the gospel. Despite all of our differences, we are all sinners saved by the blood of Christ, and we're all under one banner. What is different among us should be beautiful and appreciated, not resented nor coveted. God loves diversity among us. He created it. Fifth, I want to point out that even under the creator's plan, Even under his plan, life is full of tension. Life is full of tension. That is because of sin in the world, and we're unable to see all of God's overall purposes. But even from the womb, these two boys had struggles. And your life will have struggles too. But later we'll read about their eventual reconciliation. And if you will trust God's sovereignty, you will see that he even has a purpose for your struggle. I say this so that you will know it is normal. Each of you are going through something this morning. And that's God's plan for your life so that his power might be made perfect in your weakness and you will glorify him and say, not to us, but to you, Yahweh, be all the glory. God isn't mad at you. And when you doubt that, look at the cross. God sent his very own son into this world of tension. In fact, Jesus had to embrace that tension and obey his father's will perfectly to become the perfect man and the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. 
the sinless one, experienced a tension like we will never know or understand. And what happened to him? He was crucified on a cross. Why? He did so on our behalf so that he might take upon himself the wrath of God for our sin that we would never have to experience it. And for those of us that believe this, God reconciled us through the Son's tension. And the Son is now exalted in heaven forevermore. Whenever you're going through tension, you wonder, well, God, could this be worth it? Look to the cross and know, oh, yes, it can be worth it. God sees a mother's heart ache over a wayward child. God sees a family trying to make ends meet and refusing underhanded ways to meet them. God sees a grieving grieving spouse. God sees a wounded spirit and his inclination is to heal. But he does so in his perfect timing. And last, every word of God proves to be true. In this passage, Isaac and Rebekah have a child according to his promise. In fact, before they are born, God promises Rebekah she has two sons. He promises they will become two nations, and they do. They become the nations of Edom and Israel. God promises that they will be divided, and they are. And God promises that the older will serve the younger. And that happens exactly one millennia later when King David conquers Edom, the descendants of Esau. Every word of the Lord proves to be true. And when he says, come unto me, all ye who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, he will give you rest. When he says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus was raised from the dead, you will be saved. He will save you. And when he promises, no matter who is elected in this next election cycle as we go through this all over again, when he says, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, he will still be in control. Because what Yahweh wants... Yahweh gets. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your inerrant word, which continues to give us confidence, Lord. Confidence that you have this marvelous, sovereign plan of salvation that you were working out. You worked it out from the very beginning, worked it out to its fruition in Christ, and you're still working it out today and those who don't know you as you are calling them towards you. And because of that, Lord, we are just so grateful because, Lord, we have been included in that plan. And, Lord, we see that that through all of life, Lord, there is going to be tension. We know that you have ordained that for us, not because you are somehow out of control of what's going on, but so that you might prove your power in our lives. And so this morning, Lord, as we continue to study Genesis, we pray that that these words would come alive to us, that we would remember these stories throughout the day, that, Lord, we could look back and see how you preserve life, how you create life, Lord, and even the way that you do marvelous things, Lord, uh, in this world through our lives that we, Lord, would champion it. And in the midst of that, Lord, we would continue to give you glory because you are worth it. You're worth every struggle. 
You're worth every point of tension that we have in our life. Even, Lord, if we don't see the fruition of that and our lives should end, we know that you are still sovereignly in control and you are bringing about your purposes. We pray this all in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen.